Well, again, good morning to you, New Breed. It's good to, to be back with you this morning. It's good to open God's Word. Hopefully by now you are at Daniel chapter 3. And I want to I begin by just reading this, this entire chapter, Daniel chapter 3. So here we are beginning in verse 1. Daniel records this. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you. The king, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want You as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he was filled with rage. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. 
And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, Look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, You servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's commands and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Again, we, we thank you for this picture of faithfulness in the midst of a nation that was not for you, God. In the midst of a nation that was worshiping other gods and worshiping themselves, we thank you that we see examples of what it looks like to be faithful. And God, as we, as we examine Daniel 3 and consider this idea of, of standing when the world bows, God, I pray that you would give us grace to have eyes to see and ears to hear and that we too, Lord, whenever the time may come, as often as the time may come, would be found standing when the world bows. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, church, uh, as we consider this This chapter, we consider Daniel 3. We're continuing on in our series through the book entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship. And as you might have picked up even from the prayer there and what was on your screen a few moments ago, I want us to consider for just a few minutes this idea of standing when the world bows. Of standing when the world bows. You know, one one thing about us as a people that I've noticed, I've noticed it uh, about myself, is that we seem to admire those who are willing to stand alone when everyone else bends, when everyone else 
bows, those who, who will not compromise when it, when it seems like everyone else has, right? We see this e- even in the movies that we like, in the movies that we watch. We love those movies, right? Where one stands against many and prevails, when someone refuses to compromise and they come out on top. I mean, a few movies that even just pop into my head, movies like, like Remember the Titans, uh, and movies like, like Hacksaw Ridge, where someone stands or a group of people stand on their convictions when everybody else seems to be compromising and they refuse to bend. We admire this in, in, in people of faith who have gone before us. We, we admire those and esteem those who, who, when it seemed like no one else would stand, they stood when everyone else bowed. We consider people like Harriet Tubman who, who through her faith and her trust in her God was willing to fight to, to free slaves and to commit her life to, to, to helping transport people in slavery to freedom. We see it in people, in people like Martin Luther King Jr. who was willing to stand and to cry racism and injustice in our nation and, and at a time when so few were willing to stand. We see it going back even further to the German theologian Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr. No relationship. But Martin Luther, who when he, he stood before the Catholic Church and stood before a church that was so intertwined with government and how, and how things work, and he was called a heretic and he was put on trial. And after reading the book of God, uh, after reading the, the Word of God and studying the Bible, he, he stood at his trial and said, Here I stand, I can do no other. There's something within us that knows that over particular issues, in certain cases, in some situations, there is something uniquely beautiful about standing when the world bows. And we know this to be especially true when it comes to our faith. There is, there is something beautiful about divine courage as a result of faith that allows believers to say, we will not bend, we will not break, we will not move, we will not conform because we believe that God is greater and God is worthy. That's the very thing that we see in this chapter of Scripture that we just read, chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. It is a testimony from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God is greater, therefore we cannot bow. And I want you to know something. For, for every one of us, not some, but for every one of us who claims the name of Christ, there will come moments in our life when the world tells us to bow, but where God demands that we stand. And as we consider this text that we, that we just read, I, I want to offer you a few, a few points of reflection as we consider this idea of standing when the world bows so that when those moments come, that when that inevitably happens in your life, you can spot them and be ready to hold fast to your great God. So I want to jump in this morning. I know we, we read a lot of text, but, but I want to jump in to this first of, of three points here. And, and here it is. If we are going to stand when the world bows, 
if we are going to stand when the world bows, we have to remember that both directly and indirectly, this world will demand you bow. We have to remember that both directly and indirectly, this world will demand you bow. So as we pick up here in in Daniel chapter 3, we find Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we find him making a gold statue, and it's it's 90 feet high, it's it's 9 feet wide. Now, you have to understand what what is going on here, because this decision by Nebuchadnezzar to build this statue is a direct challenge to God. Because if you remember back to last week in, in Daniel chapter 2, we recounted how, how, how Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And, and it was a troubling dream. It was a dream that he believed was from his gods when actually it was from the one true God. But, but it troubled him. He knew it wasn't a normal dream. He knew there was something more to it and he needed to know what it meant. And so he brought in all of his, all of his mediums and his magicians and his wise men. And he said, listen, I want you not only to interpret the dream for me, but I want you to tell me the dream. Because he wanted to make sure that they could actually deliver, that they were actually telling him the truth. And we saw last week that he was, he was expecting them to lie to him, but he told them, he said, listen, if you can't tell me the dream, and if you can't tell me the interpretation of the dream, then all of you will be killed. And that included Daniel. The wise men, the magicians, the the mediums, the, the sorcerers in Chaldea knew, or in Babylon, the Chaldeans, they knew right away that no man could do this. And they said that only the gods could, could do what you ask. But they said there's a problem because the gods don't dwell with men. So at this point, it appeared that all hope was lost. Daniel, he gets wind of what took place. He's told, hey, this is what the king wants. He wants someone to tell him the dream. And then he wants someone to interpret him the dream. And Daniel, trusting in faith, said, go tell the king. Go set up a meeting with him because I will tell him his dream and I will interpret the dream. We talked about how this was a huge step of faith because Daniel didn't know it yet. But he was believing that his God could do anything. He went back, he told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego what was going on, and they pleaded before God for mercy to know this mystery, and God showed him. God showed Daniel the dream and gave him the interpretation, and if you remember some of that that dream and interpretation, what what Nebuchadnezzar saw was it was a statue uh, made from different material. You remember the head was was made of of, of gold, and it represented Babylon. And then you had different parts. You had silver, you had bronze, you had iron, you had clay as you moved down the body. And, and each one of them representing a different kingdom coming to power. But, but, but what it showed was that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would not last forever. That though he was the head of the statue, that though it was made of gold, that eventually someone else would rise up and would conquer him. And God showed him this and an attempt to humble him. But when you pick up in Daniel chapter 3, you realize that 
Humility has not come. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, in his boldness and his arrogance, threw this decision to build a statue of himself, to build this statue that everyone was commanded to worship. As he built this, he was challenging God. Could God really stand against Nebuchadnezzar? That was the question that Nebuchadnezzar was answering or asking. And so the statue was built. The orders were given. People were to bow down and worship. And all of this was because Nebuchadnezzar wanted people to see him as a god. So with Nebuchadnezzar building this statue... He is trying to defy what God has said would come to pass. One commentator notes this. He says, The golden statue symbolized the king's hubris and defiance of what the God of heaven had revealed to Daniel. It is as if the king thought he could stop the vision from coming true. God told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would come to an end. And Nebuchadnezzar believes that if people worship him, if they see him as a god, he can continue to rule and live on forever. So this this was proclaimed beginning there in verse 4. It says, A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship him immediately will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And what we see here, church, is somewhat of an indirect demand that everyone bow. Now, now here's what I mean when I say indirect. Nebuchadnezzar's chief aim was not to go after those who worship Yahweh. His aim was for everyone to conform to what he wanted. He wanted and was trying to force the world to value the things that he valued in the way that he valued them. And I want you to to pay attention to this. Because I believe this is an area that trips a lot of Christians up. It, you see, it's not an outright, outright declaration to defy your God. It is indirect. It's stealthy. It's shrewd. It's the world saying, we don't care what you believe. Just make sure first and foremost, you value what we value. You do the things the way we do things. And this, this will trip a lot of Christians up because without that outright declaration to abandon God, so often Christians think that they can value the things the world values and still worship the God of all creation. And so it's somewhat of an indirect demand that we bow and often we can unknowingly bow to the world without the world ever telling us to defy our God yet that is exactly what we're doing 
Let me give you some examples. Our world tells us, value your success and your gain. Value what you earn above everything else. They don't directly tell you not to worship God. They just say, value your success. Value the things of this world. Value what you can accomplish. But the Bible reminds us that you can't serve both God and money. Our world tells us, value inclusion no matter what. And don't you dare tell anyone that they are wrong. Our country tells us, value the American dream and pursue it at all cost. Our world tells us, value yourself. Be true to yourself. Be your true self. (laughs) The Bible tells us that our true self is desperately wicked. But we can buy into so many false values because no one has directly told us to defy, to defy our God and it is dangerous. That's why Paul commands in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God. What is the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. We allow the word of God to shape what we do and we allow the word of God to dictate and determine what it is that we value. Now, now let me offer a little clarification because even on that passage in Romans 12 there, some people have interpreted that and they still do interpret that to mean that if we do anything that looks like the world, we are bowing down and we are in sin. But, but I, don't, I don't think that's the case. Because the context of that verse is not ultimately about what you do. The context of that verse is about your mind. It says renew your mind. And then it says discern. So what Romans 12.2 is getting at is that, that we, we, what we believe will shape us. And what we believe will dictate what we value so, so it's not telling us that you can't do anything that the world does. You can't, you can't at any moment agree with the world on things that they do and say because we know that there's common grace for all people and just calling it what it is, sometimes the world gets some things right. So, so yes, the, the world fights for racial justice. And we are not conforming to this age if we do too. As long as we are being led by the word of God and the reason that we are fighting for it is because we are valuing the things that God values. Yes, we we protest police brutality and so does the world. But we're not motivated by a hatred of the police. At least we shouldn't be. We are motivated by the Word of God, which calls us to value the image of God, which is imprinted on every human being, and work to make that image valued. So, so there are times when our actions will look similar to that of the world. And Romans 12.2 is not telling us that that is a bad thing, but what Romans 12.2 is telling us is that when the things that we believe and the things that we think are, are dictated by the world, rather than the word of God, we have conformed to the pattern of this age. We have bowed down. And while sometimes we will be indirectly tempted to bow down, the world will not always be so subtle. At times, the world will directly demand that we bow. 
And and we see this beginning there in verse 8 because it says some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews, the, the people of God. It goes on, it says, they said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, may may the king live forever. They are patting his ego. He says, you as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. I think from now on I'm just going to say the instruments. It says, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And, and listen to this. He says, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. You see, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was not directly focused on the people of God. Yes, he was challenging their God, but he wasn't necessarily focused on on, on them and and making them defy God. He he was defying God, but, but they weren't his primary focus. But there were some. Some wanted to directly challenge the people who believed that Yahweh is God. And what this reminds us of is that we cannot forget that we have a real enemy. And though these Chaldeans wanted to see the Jews perish, they wanted to see them thrown into the fiery furnace, they were not ultimately the enemy. Because the enemy is not flesh and blood. That's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's why Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. You could paraphrase that to say stand. Stand firm when you are directly being called and tempted and demanded to bow. We cannot, church, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle every moment of every day. And Satan's aim is the same yesterday, today, and will be until his final destruction. His aim is this, bow down. And if we are going to stand when the world bows We have to understand the reality that both indirectly and directly the world will demand you bow. So a point of application for you here, maybe to just get your mind going a little bit. Are you aware of areas in your life where you are being tempted to bow down? And if you can't identify any, that may be somewhat of a scary thing because perhaps you have given in and not realized. But if we are going to stand when the world bows, we have to understand the reality that both indirectly and directly, the world will demand that you bow. But this leads to the second point that I want to flesh out a little bit this morning. And it's this, if we are going to stand when the world bows, we must be willing to stand with few. 
If we are going to stand when the world bows, we must be willing to stand with few. So, so in our text, in this chapter, the, the Chaldeans plot against the Jews, but what is interesting is what, what takes place there in verse 12. Because it says there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, now this is somewhat of speculation, but, but I think there is evidence here in the text. I think the text points us to it. But of all those who were present at the statue, and that's important because not every faithful Jew was there. For example, Daniel was at the palace. Chapter 2, verse 49. He, he wasn't there because you've got to remember there at the very beginning of chapter 3, it says that this statue, it was set up in Endura. Endura was not in the, the, the center of the city. It was, it was set up outside. So, so not everyone was there. Not, not everyone that, that Nebuchadnezzar had rule over was at this. But of those who were there, it appears that only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied the king. And what that means, most likely, is that there were other Jews present who bowed down. And this is a reminder to us that faithfulness is not always the road most traveled. Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. And then it says, How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And then Jesus says, And few find it. Church, hear me when I tell you that the road of faithfulness is not an easy road. And Jesus himself reminds us that there are few who are on it. And I, I hope this is somewhat of an encouragement to you, but also a word of exhortation to declare truth faithfully. But, but I would contend that not everyone who thinks they are on the road are actually on the road. Not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. There are people who can articulate the gospel. They can tell you theology. They can spout off all of these things, but they're not actually on the road. In 2016, approximately 70% of the population in the United States of America identified as Christian. That, that would be roughly 230 million people. I'm going to be honest with you, church. I don't see it. I, I don't see it. And often when we are actually walking this road of faithfulness, when we are standing, when the world demands that we bow, we will find the road far from crowded. 
But, but in some sense, right, Jesus warned us of this. Jesus told us, he said, listen, before you come and follow me, count the cost. He, he knew up front that the road would be narrow, that it would be a hard road, but it would be a road that leads to life. But he told people, he said, listen, count the cost before you come and follow me because I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to think that this life will be easy because it won't. You will stand when the world bows. You will hold fast when the world gives in in. Faithfulness will demand it of you, but it will not be easy. He said, count the cost. Jesus said, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. He knew that following him in this life would be difficult. But for those of us who are following him, we can declare that it is worth it. This life is not meant to be easy. But we learn something important here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that teaches us something of what we have to understand if we are going to walk this road that few walk. And here it is. While on the difficult path, we must know and believe that we don't have to vindicate ourselves and we don't have to vindicate God. Look at verses 13 through 16. It says, Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now if you're ready when you hear the instruments... Fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? That's a bold question. And then it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, and I want you to see this, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. And oh, how that last line is so important. We don't need to give you an answer to this question. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they did not have to vindicate themselves. They did not have to vindicate their God. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. There is a temptation when we are standing, when the world bows. There is a temptation to focus more on proving that we are, we are right in what we are doing rather than focusing on making sure we are doing what is actually right. Because we, we do. We want, we want people to know the truth. We want people to see God for who He is. But we are not the ones. We have never been, nor will we ever be, the ones who change people's hearts and minds. Yes, we are called to be faithful. I, I don't want you to hear me saying that we, we don't give a defense for the hope that we have, that we, we don't speak truth when, when we have opportunities to speak truth. But we have to understand that we don't have to vindicate ourselves and we don't have to vindicate our God. We are simply called to be faithful, to stand when the world bows because, listen, God will vindicate us. 
Psalm 135, 14 reminds us, for the Lord will vindicate his people. Praise God. But not only that, God doesn't need us to defend him because God, believe it or not, is big enough to defend himself. Psalm 74, 22, the psalmist says, Arise, O God, defend your cause. He says, You, God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day long. God can defend himself. God can vindicate himself. And we will see God do that in just a moment. You see, I love, and I think it's such a a, a timely word, I love that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't feel it necessary to answer that question of, of what God can deliver you from me. What, what God can deliver you from the fire, from the furnace? Do you really think your God is that strong? And rather than going on in a, a theological discourse about what God has done in the past and His power to create and His power to deliver and His power to redeem, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this moment were confident that God would vindicate them either in this life or in the life to come and that God would vindicate Himself. And again, I do want to be crystal clear. I am not saying that we don't defend the faith. We are called to defend the faith. We speak truth. We correct error. That is what we are called to do. But we also have to use wisdom in knowing when we don't have to. When it's not our job. And if I can be transparent for you with a moment, I know that for so many right now, that is probably very difficult. I believe, as you have heard me declare even last week, I believe that in the season that we are in, 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 this, in this fight that we are in to see the image of God valued in people, I am keenly aware that there are Christians who, who profess to love Jesus. There are those who are, who are lost, who are telling us that what we are doing isn't right. It's not biblical. It's nothing but, but, but cultural garbage. And I know if you're like me, you are tempted to feel the need to defend and vindicate yourself and vindicate your God. And sometimes that is wise, but sometimes, church, we need to stop and pray for God to give us wisdom to know when we just need to say, I don't need to answer you that. Because God will vindicate me and God will vindicate himself. We actually have to believe God when he says that vengeance is mine. And in that vengeance, God vindicates himself. But in order for us to trust that God will vindicate us and himself, in order for us to stand when the world bows, we have to have faith. That's the final point this morning that I want to draw your attention to. That if we are going to stand when the world bows, we must have faith faith. We must have faith. And what we see in this passage is both a powerful example of faith and a powerful declaration of faith. Look again, beginning there in verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. And listen to this. They say, if the God we serve exists, listen to this, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can 
rescue us from the power of you, the king. Now verse 18, but, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Church, that is such a profound picture of faith. Because what we are reminded of here is what we began to talk a little bit about last week, that faith is believing that God can do anything, but he doesn't have to do what you want. But what he does and allows is always right and good. We are reminded here, even in those verses, that faith is not knowing everything God will do. That's called knowledge. That's not faith. Faith is not knowing everything God will do. Faith is trusting that though you don't know what God will do, you believe that what he does and allows will always work for good. It will always be what is best and right. Listen, faith is not believing that God will do something so much that you bring it to fruition. It's not speaking anything into existence. That's not faith. That's called casting a wish, right? Faith is trusting that though you don't know what God will do, that he can do anything. That this is the God that spoke the world into existence. This is the God that to this day holds this world in the palm of his hand. This is the God that has conquered sin and death. Faith is trusting that this God can do anything, but he doesn't have to do what you want. But whatever he does is or allows is right and good, and it is always best. So even if he doesn't do what you want, true faith will still drive you to worship. And that is exactly what we see here with Shadrach, and Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If the God we serve exists, which they believe he does, they say, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But... Even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Because even if God does not deliver them from that fire, they still believe that that God will deliver them. They are believing what, what would be spoken later, that what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What, what, does it, what does it profit for us to have our lives spared in this life only to sacrifice our eternal life? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were under no assumption that God would or had to deliver them from that furnace, but they believed that he could. So what happens next in the story? Well, it's, it's like we read. So, so they refuse to bow. They stand when the world demands that they bow. They stand when everyone else bows and they stand in faith. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. 
And so he tells, he tells his guards, he says, go and, and heat that furnace seven times what it normally is. Seven times hotter. And, and we know that, that that's probably hard for them to do literally. But, but what, what Nebuchadnezzar was saying is, I want to make sure that they burn. Make this as hot as you can make it. And they heated it so much that the guards who were near the fire were killed. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. This is a story that if you've grown up in church, you've heard so many times. But we got to pause for a minute and not think of this as fiction, not think of this as myth, but consider how amazing this act of supernatural power is that happened. That three men were thrown into a furnace to be burned. The text even mentions they still had all their clothes on, which should have caught fire, which should have made them burn faster, which should have ensured their death. And they are thrown into the fire, and it seems as if the ropes that they were bound with burned off. And when Nebuchadnezzar and when the others look in, they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they see someone else. Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps somewhat prophetically, says that the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. There's much discussion about who was in that fire with them. Whether it was an angel, we'll see angels show up even named in the book of Daniel in the chapters to come. Perhaps it was that same angel. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was somewhat prophetic in his declaration and it was the pre-incarnate Christ with them. We don't know for sure, but one thing we know with complete and utter certainty is that God was with them in that fire. That God was with them. And not only was God with them, But God was delivering them. Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. Come out. Come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's advisors gathered around them, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their head was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. That's a pretty amazing feat, too, because I can't seem to manage that one when I'm grilling. But there was no smell of fire on them, though they stood in the midst of the flames. And listen to this, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar's response. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I issue a decree that that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive about the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump for there is no other god who is able to deliver like this In that statement, Nebuchadnezzar answers the question that he posed earlier in the chapter. 
And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And see, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of that fire, not only had God vindicated them in that moment, but God had vindicated His great name. God didn't need Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to to defend Him. He didn't need them to fight for Him because God was more than capable of vindicating His great name. But what He wanted, what He longed for, what God demands of His children is that they stand when the world demands that they bow. And through their faithfulness, God not only vindicated them, but He vindicated His great name. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And what's so amazing is in that statement and in this story, we see again another echo of the gospel. We see another echo longing for a better deliverer, a better redeemer. Because, you know, this isn't the first time that that a furnace has been described. Because if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses speaks of of Egypt as a furnace. And it speaks of God delivering His people out of that furnace, of saving them from bondage and slavery to bring them to freedom. And in that same chapter, God, God, Moses recounts to the people how God speaks through fire, that God has spoken to His people through fire. And he goes on, and, and, and in Deuteronomy 4, God says that you shouldn't make any, any, any image of carved or, or, or any image of idolatry that you will bow down and worship because God says, I am a jealous God. God, and I am an all-consuming fire. And so we have seen this pattern develop throughout the Old Testament of God delivering His people from the fire. He delivered Israel from the fire of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. Here He delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, vindicating them and vindicating His great name because of their faith. And once again, God, in the greatest move that He has ever made, saved people from fire. Because church, I don't know if you know, and I don't know if you remember, but every one of us deserves to spend eternity in hell because of our sin. We, we are destined to be separated from God in eternal torment and punishment, and we deserve it because of our sin. We deserve it because of our rebellion. But the God who delivered in Egypt and the God who delivered in Babylon was faithful to deliver on a hill called Calvary. When, when Jesus Christ showed up and lived in this world and lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And he fulfilled God's law perfectly. He deserved no fire. He deserved no death. He deserved no judgment. He deserved no hell. And yet God poured out the full measure of his wrath on his son so that we might come to salvation, so that we might be delivered from the fire through faith, so that we might have hope. And as amazing as this deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, it is pointing us to consider the greater deliverance that is available because of Jesus Christ. Where God once again delivered from fire. And church, in light of that deliverance, in light of how amazing our God is and the fact that He invites us to freely find forgiveness, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, to find a hope and salvation in what Christ has done by placing our faith in Him. 
by repenting of our sins, but, but placing our faith in him. And we want that faith to be strong. We want it to last. And we trust God so much because he has proven his faithfulness that we are willing to walk that narrow road. We are willing to walk that hard road as long as we are on this earth. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it will be painful. There will be trials and toils and snares with every step. But we believe that God is worth it and that he is worthy of worship. Because if God, the God we serve, exists, then he can rescue us from the fires of our age. He can deliver us from the furnace of our times. He can rescue us from every king and government and power and oppressor. But even if he does not rescue us, We want the world to know that we will serve no other gods or worship any idols. When the world bows, we will stand because we believe that our God is worth it. And the only way we are even empowered to do this is by the spirit that dwells in us through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But church, here is my call to you as I bring this thing to a close. We cannot forget that this world will demand that we bow. But if we are going to stand when the world bows, we have to be willing to stand with few. But more importantly, we have to be willing to stand in faith, believing that what we receive on the other side is far superior to any comfort and any ease and any pleasure that we could receive in this life. We will walk the narrow road. We will walk the hard road so that one day we may walk the streets of gold. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray. I pray in a world that is not for you, that does not love you. In a world where Satan roams, like a lion seeking someone to devour in a world where we wage war against powers and principalities and the forces of darkness. God, I pray that in the midst of this world, when everyone else bows, we will stand. Not because we are strong, not, not because we're so smart or we're so good, but we will stand because we have looked at you, the loving God of creation, and seen you to be worthy. We look at the cross and your love for us displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus and we will declare with our lives that there is no one greater than you. There is no one worth following to you. And so we will stand when everyone bows, but when we are at your feet, we will bow for you and you alone are worthy. God, help us. Help us. Because we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.